So if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Um, in a moment, I'm going to pray. Uh, for those of you who have kids in the room, we're so glad uh, that they're here and that you're here. We're expecting it's going to be a little noisier than, than normal. Uh, don't worry about it at all. We're just glad um, kids are here too. It's great to have kids back in the building. So let's pray. Father, what a wild, wild times we live in. Lord, we thank you that you have not changed. So many things around us have changed, but one thing that has not changed is you. Um, your word has not changed. Your word is true always. Your faithfulness has not changed. The hope of Jesus has not changed. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us and stir us and convict us and change us this morning as we encounter you through your word. We love you. We thank you that you love us. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. Uh, the title of this message is called, um, it's a Good Samaritan passage. It's called Prove to Be a Neighbor. Prove to Be a Neighbor. In a bit, you'll see where I got that title. I took it right out of the passage. So as you know, we, we live in tumultuous times. And because of that, I know for myself and hopefully for you as well, we're very aware of our need for the Lord and are very aware of our need for one another. We're currently, hopefully at the tail end of a worldwide pandemic. As a country, in the last few months, we've seen the, the horrific ugliness of deep-seated racism be exposed again. We've seen unemployment in our state and country skyrocket. Um, and we know from, from research, from history, that oftentimes when these kinds of pressures happen, things like spousal abuse, drug abuse, alcoholism, enslavement to all sorts of sins also multiply. And so it's into those difficult things that I felt like the Lord wanted me to um, preach on um, the Good Samaritan today. Now, just for, for full transparency, this is not the message that I was planning on preaching on our first Sunday back. I wanted it to be a very celebratory message, and we're certainly celebrating that we're together. But I think we'd be missing something if we didn't address from the Bible the different things that we are seeing all around us. So this morning, we're going to take a brief break from the book of Acts just for this Sunday. And here's my prayer. As we go through this parable, which may be familiar to many of you, I pray that it would be a mirror into our hearts and minds, that we would have an honest evaluation of who we are and how we think about the things that we see in our world. And it would lead to godly sorrow, joyful repentance, and lasting change, both as a local church and as a local church that desires to impact our local community and beyond. So when we read the parable, here's what I want you to think. Which, ask yourself these questions, which character am I most like in this parable? Which one am I most like in my thoughts, in my words, in my actions? Not which one do I want to be like, but present day, which one am I most like? In light of this passage, are there areas of your life that you need to repent of, 
sins of omission, sins of commission? What areas do I need to experience the cleansing forgiveness from Jesus once again? What actions can I take to love my neighbor? What is God calling me to do? So ask those questions of yourself as we go through this passage. So we're going to go, I'm going to read the whole passage, then we'll walk back through it. Luke 10, starting at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, to put Jesus to the test. This is what the lawyer said. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the man, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied. Now Jesus is going to tell a story to prove a point. I want you to picture this story in your mind. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among the robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. It's going to be a really important word this morning. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Then Jesus asks the question, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So now let's, let's walk back through this passage. First point, proving to be a neighbor, prove to be a neighbor by loving God and others. Prove to be a neighbor by loving God and others. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that and what that means. But the big idea is prove to be a neighbor by loving God and loving others. Let's backtrack. Verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up, put him to the test. A lawyer, this was not a lawyer like we think of. This was a lawyer of the law, of God's word. A, a, a very student of God's word. And we know his motives were not pure when he interacted with Jesus. We know he wanted to justify himself, prove himself to be righteous. And he wanted to test Jesus. But Jesus goes along with it. And it's never a good idea ever a good idea to test Jesus. You will always lose. So he puts him to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, is a good teacher, asks a question, an answer to a question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? What's, what's your take on it? What's your take on how you inherit eternal life? How do you read it? 
And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. So complete, total devotion to the Lord. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So the lawyer got the answer right. So the answer was from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. And the Old Testament certainly affirms those two commands, to love God with absolute devotion and to love our fellow neighbor with absolute devotion. However, we're going to see there was some, some faulty thinking in the lawyer's mind that's important for us to think about. So the first is this, what, what's the problem and the point of Jesus' statement? What's the problem? What's the problem the lawyer had? Well, one of the problems is this man thought he could actually, in and of his own strength, perfectly keep a wholehearted devotion to God and a wholehearted devotion to his fellow man. The problem is, because of our sinful nature, it's impossible Nobody can keep that command by themselves except Jesus Christ. And so he's, he's sort of answering the question, how do you get eternal life? Well, it can't be from obeying Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, because if it is, we're all in trouble. For if it is, the lawyer's in deep trouble, because no one can perfectly obey only Jesus has done that. Now, I know you know this, but I'm going to tell you again. The beauty of Christianity is that Jesus perfectly obeyed both the vertical dimension, to love God with his whole heart, mind, and soul, and the horizontal dimension, to love his neighbor as himself. And because he did that, he could be our perfect substitute when he died on the cross and then rose from the grave. And so we are accepted not by law-keeping, but by trusting in Jesus and turning from our sins, faith and repentance. Now when that happens, God's Spirit comes inside of us, and here's the beauty of it. We are now empowered to, in a growing way, keep the vertical dimension of loving God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and the horizontal dimension of loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's a supernatural thing to be able to do that. And if you are a Christian, you have been given that supernatural power from the Holy Spirit. So we can, in a growing way, Prove to be a neighbor to our fellow human beings. We should have growing evidence of love of God and love of neighbor as Christians. Paul says it this way in, in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, the mercies that we have received in Christ, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't, 
go with the flow of this world, be transformed, be entirely different because of God's Spirit in us. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So immediately upon conversion, upon your salvation, you were given power, you were given life by the Holy Spirit to in a growing way be devoted to God himself and to our fellow human beings. Second point. Jesus is going to press on this a bit. Prove to be a neighbor by displaying mercy to those who suffer injustice. Prove to be a neighbor by displaying mercy to those who suffer injustice. Before we get to that part, we've got to look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, this is the lawyer, the student of the law, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, sometimes you can have so much information and you're staring at it and it just gets distorted. And that's what happened for this man. He had God's law. He had the Old Testament. But he misread it. He read it as something that he could do in and of himself. And because he thought he was really good at it, he was most likely very self-righteous and very arrogant. And sometimes scholars can twist the Bible and miss the obvious. For example, if we were in the New Testament times talking to this lawyer or some of the Pharisees at the time or some of the other scholars of the day, we would hear a debate about, well, who is my neighbor anyway? Who is my neighbor? And that's why this man asked that question. Some Jewish scholars of the day, of Jesus' day, believed wrongly that Leviticus 19.18 supported this statement. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So they, they made a distinction. There's a certain group of people that are my neighbor, and there's a certain group of people that are not my neighbor. And so I'm to love the ones that fill my neighbor category, and I'm to hate the ones that don't. Jesus knew that, and he was going to blow that apart, and he blows it apart by the parable. Others believe that your neighbor was only Israelites, only Jewish people. So I'm to love the Jewish people, if I'm Jewish, but no one else. Others, probably Pharisees, interpreted this so strictly that they thought a neighbor was only someone who was a Pharisee, a religious teacher. Now we know from the Bible, we know from this passage, that a neighbor is any human being that God has created. And that's why Jesus tells the parable. The parable is meant to poke at a lot of faulty thinking, both for the lawyer's mind, and I think faulty thinking in our own mind. So, we're going to walk through the parable again. I want you to picture this, and I want you to picture it with current events happening as well. And I want you to ask yourself, who am I in this parable? Verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among the robbers. He got beat up and left for dead, who stripped him and beat him and departed him, leaving him 
half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and passed by the other side. So you have a victim laying on the ground, beaten, half dead. Walk, let's walk to the other side. We, we don't see it. I'm not going to look. I, I'm going to pretend like it's not there. And we get a third person who enters the, the story. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And we're going to see in a moment why that was so shocking. Samaritans didn't have compassion on the Jewish people, and the Jewish people did not have compassion on the Samaritans. He didn't just have compassion, he took action. Verse 34, he went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, emptying out his wallet, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three, he asked the question, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. It's a little more information to get, get the, the scene. The, the trip from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 17 miles. It started at 2,500 feet, went down below to 800 feet below sea level. It was rocky. There were, there were caves. It was a common place for robbers to hide and beat people up and take their money. And so though this was a parable, there was truth in the reality that if you walk that road, this could be a likely scenario. And Jesus wants us all to know that a neighbor is any fellow human being. Any fellow human being who has been created in the image of God is our neighbor, is someone we are called by God to show mercy to. Now, he he uses characters intentionally. So when he talks about a priest in the parable, I don't think it's a stretch say most likely the, the priest would have been coming from Jerusalem, probably coming from temple duties, having served in the temple that very day, serving the Lord, doing his duty, and then not too long after, just walks by and ignores it. Maybe the Christian equivalent is a pastor. We preach something And then we drive by a a, a terrible situation and we just put a blinder and we we don't see it. We don't care to stop. We don't care to have compassion. A Levite was somebody from the tribe of Levi. Um, Levi's principal roles included um, singing in the temple, singing psalms and temple services, performing construction and maintenance in the temple, serving as guards, performing as other services. So this could be our Christian equivalent of a worship team and worship leaders. Passionately singing to the Lord, passionately serving the Lord. And then they leave and they see a need. They see a man beat up, bloodied, left for dead, and they do nothing. They look away. Now the Samaritan, the third character here, um, 
was historically during this time despised by the Jews. It's a very long history you can read in the Old Testament. But um, at this point in the, in the New Testament times, the Samaritan was a mixed blood race resulting from the intermarriage of Israelites left behind when the people of the northern kingdom were exiled and Gentiles were brought into the land by the Assyrians. So they had a different place to worship. They had a different way to worship. They had um, some, just a whole bunch of differences. And at the point where Jesus is telling this story, there was massive tension between Jews and Samaritans, which is why John 4 was so significant when Jesus approached the woman at the well. See, Jesus is so countercultural in the way he approaches these things. So the details of the parable matter. The Samaritan was by far the most unlikely one to help this man. And I don't think it's a stretch in the context of the parable that the, the victim was Jewish. He most likely was Jewish. He was coming from Jerusalem. He was going to Jericho. He most likely was Jewish. And so the Samaritan helped the very one that he might have thought didn't even like him, despised him, hated him, and maybe uh, for some valid reasons. So as we're thinking about how do, you, how do you be a neighbor? Well, part of it, I think we see in this passage, is proving to be a neighbor begins with seeing the suffering. Proving to be a neighbor begins with seeing the suffering. Part of my prayer of this message is that our eyes would be open wider to see the suffering all around us in all its different forms. Verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. When he saw him, he had compassion. He, like everyone else, had an agenda for the day, had plans for the day, had what he thought he was going to do for the day. But he looked over and he sees a man lying there and his heart breaks. It's not enough to see the suffering. We have to have a heart towards those who suffer. And that can be a prayer. If you, if you don't have compassion on the suffering, you see, you don't understand the suffering, you see, you don't, you don't get it, you're not moved by it. Maybe the starting place is just to ask the Lord, Lord, break my heart for those who are suffering. In Matthew 9, Pat, it's so good to hear you respond while I'm preaching. That's beautiful. <laughs> that is so encouraging. I, I was hearing her in my head for the last three months, so it's good to hear her live. Love it. Um, verse 35, And Jesus went through out all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds... And these weren't pleasant crowds. I, I think we get the wrong idea that if you were sick and suffering, you weren't just waiting in line with a smile on your face. If they were your kids sick and suffering, it would have been noisy. It would have been messy. There probably would have been people that were rude and yelling. What about my son? What about my daughter? Help! It would have been a messy crowd. Jesus saw the messy crowd, and he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then his disciples said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So, 
May this strange time that we just walked through of this quarantine be a reset for us all. May our eyes see more suffering than we saw before. Let me just give you a couple categories. As I give you these categories, don't put these into political categories. Put these into people categories. Okay? So what suffering should we see? We should see prevalent deep-seated racism still exists in our country. It's a real thing. It is a real thing. Real people really are suffering. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. Poverty is a real thing. Child abuse, spousal abuse is a real thing. People suffering from sickness of COVID-19 and many other things is a real thing. Immorality and people enslaved to all kinds of vices is a real thing. Skyrocketing unemployment is a real thing. It's a real thing. It's a real thing for those who are able to collect unemployment, but it's a real thing for those who, who have no source of income right now. Don't look at these as political issues, but rather see them as people issues. Let's talk for a moment about the sin of racism. Lloyd, can you bring me that book? I'm so sorry to ask you to do it. I forgot to bring it up. We'll do it off camera. <laughs> Thanks. Let me just read a dif- uh, de- um, dictionary definition of racism. Because compassion begins when we see the suffering of others. Racism as defined by the dictionary. Prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. Prejudice, discrimination, antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. Racism is a sin. It is clearly a sin. God created human beings, male and female, men and women, boys and girls, in His image. Period. In His image. No race is superior to another. God created, look at Genesis 1.27, created man in His own image. We're to be image bearers, no matter our skin color. Every human being is an image bearer by the fact that they're human, created by God. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Every single human being is an image bearer of God, is made in God's image. That is a clear as day biblical truth. And therefore, the discrimination of anyone of a different skin color is a sin. It is wrong. It is wrong. Let me read a passage to you, and I, I want you to picture this passage. This is a picture of all of God's people gathered at a future time in the book of Revelation. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, languages, skin colors, 
ethnicities standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is God's family. This is God's people in this beautiful mosaic of cultures and color. That is God's design. That is God's plan. And we, as Christians, need to stand up and defend those who suffer. Those who suffer injustice. Those who suffer from the sin of racism. Recently, I met with two African-American leaders with the primary goal of, of listening and learning from them. And they're two local leaders. And, and one of the things that hit me right away is I've known both these men for one for 20 years, the other for about 10 years. And I, I thought, shame on me for not having this conversation earlier. I, all I asked them was, tell me your story. Tell me what, what you see from your perspective. Both these men are God-fearing Jesus preaching, Bible loving brothers, for sure. And so they, they one was in his 30s, one was in his mid 60s. And, and they just told their experience, their experience of real racism, their experience of real suffering, and their experience of real hope if. We as Christians unite. And, and one of their appeals is, is for us who are, are not African American, who are not black, who are not people of color, to see this as it's a family issue. We need to stand up for what is right. And one of the, the men recommended this book, which I highly recommend. It's called Woke Church. It's by Dr. Eric Mason, who is a pastor. One of the things he writes in this book is, if our theology isn't wide enough to fit racial equality and fighting injustice within it, then, my friend, our theology is wanting. It is lacking. If our theology, however sound it is, doesn't lead to action for those who suffer injustice, whether it's because of race or because of other issues, then something's missing. Something breaks down in the equation. One of the things that the one man pointed out to me right away from this book that we're not going to have this graphic, but I'll describe it, is a timeline in this book of slavery just in our country. So, because you might think, well, didn't slavery happen a long, long time ago? And, and so why is it so raw and fresh for many, many people in our country? Let me just give you a timeline. 1619, Slavery began in our country, and it lasted 246 years up till 1865, which then went into an 89-year period of segregation, and then only the past 64 years have we been in a post-segregated time period, which is a number of you in this room that have been alive longer than that post-segregation time period. That's not a very long time ago. And so it's fresh and it's real. The men said a lot of things. We met for quite a long time. But one of the things they said to me as a white Christian and a white pastor, I was asking them for help. They said it's not enough to, 
to believe that racism is a sin. That's a good thing. But as Christians, we should be anti-racist. We should be fighting against injustice. We should be, be working towards protecting the rights of our fellow image bearers. And one of the, the, the men said, said something that was extremely convicting right away. He said, I, I don't think, he said, Joe, I don't think you're, you're racist. I, I believe you're not. We wouldn't even be having this conversation if you were. But he said, here's how I often see it play out among, particularly among white Christians. You're at a picnic. You're with Uncle Jimmy. Uncle Jimmy makes a racial slur, and you do nothing about it. And boy, is that convicting. I don't have an Uncle Jimmy, but I've been in those situations and sadly at times have not spoken up, have not been anti-racist. I have thought, well, that is wrong, that is sinful, I don't agree. But there's more we can do. Let me just stay on the subject for a little bit longer. Another church member sent this article to me this week. Why pastors or white pastors, our decision to show up matters. This is a guy, um, Ethan Magnus. He wrote this article for Christianity Today. And let me encourage you, go on Christianity Today. There is a gazillion good articles right now. We as a church must resist evil. We must seek peace and pursue it. We must speak up against the casual racism of our friends. We must believe our African-American brothers and sisters about the systemic racism that they face when, when we discover that we are part of the problem. We must listen to those who are ahead of us in this journey of resisting racism. We must advocate for real reform of unjust systems and real accountability for oppressive and murderous acts. We, we need to come as, alongside our Christian brothers and sisters of all skin colors. On a micro level, on an individual level, and on a macro level. We have to be mindful of all the tragedy that, that we have seen with our own eyes. It's, it's a real thing. It is a real thing that we, we can't ignore. We can't act like it's, it's not there. If, and you should be familiar with these names by now, but if the wrongful death of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd has not done something inside of you, if you haven't read about or seen some of the horrific footing, footage, it should, it should do something. And then we should do something. Now we're going to talk about that. We should do something in a, in a bit. But the first part is we should have compassion. When I, when I have watched the, the video clip of Ahmaud Arbery several times, who, who got shot while he was jogging, I thought, as many of you know, I, I jog all the time. I run often around my house. I have never once in my life feared for my life when I'm on a jog. Never, ever, ever. As I've talked to others of color, that, that's a common thing. They, they have certain protocols in their mind that they would teach their children just to be safe. I don't have to think about it that way. And so I want to make sure I'm loving my brothers and sisters and defending and doing what's right. 
First Sunday back, let me just crack, crack this open a little bit wider. Show all my cards. I'm just going to throw them on the table. I've been preaching to an empty room for a long time, so you might think, what, what happened to him? I think the Lord set me free is what happened to me. So uh, let's talk about politics just for a moment. Just so you know where I'm coming from. I am a registered independent politically, and my allegiance is to Jesus, and my primary citizenship is in heaven. I'm not saying that it has to be you, but that's where I am as I evaluate all the different things, and I want to be a participant in the political process, and I would encourage you to do the same, but I don't want to hope in a political party. I don't want to hope in a, I don't want to get all my information from a particular news source. I want to have my primary hope come from this book, this precious book that men and women have bled and died to preserve so that we would have it. And so, no matter where you land, and our church has a, you might not know this, we have a wide variety of political spectrums represented in the church. Here's what I would ask you to do. Seek the Lord. Study His Word. Form your convictions from His Word. And then act upon your conscience. But be people of God's word, not a particular political affiliation or particular news media outlet. Follow God's word. See, proving to be a neighbor begins with seeing the suffering. Ask the Lord, Lord, help me to see the suffering. Help me, help me not to be so quick to make a judgment on something I do not personally experience or understand. Lord, give me eyes to see. Give me ears to listen. One of the things that I've told my children many times, but I think it applies to us as adults too, this is in the Bible, but God clearly gave us two ears and one mouth. Use them proportionally. Two ears, one mouth. We do a lot better if we use them proportionally. We listen more than we talk. Don't turn a blind eye toward the opportunity to minister to others. Don't do it. If you're not sure what to do, ask questions, read articles, talk to people. Now, racism isn't the only ill in our society. Poverty, child abuse, spousal abuse, sickness, suffering, immorality, enslavement to all kinds of vices. People are disoriented and scared. Engage a real person face-to-face, and care for them. Don't turn a blind eye and miss the opportunity to minister to others. Verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite. When he came to the place, saw him, he passed by on the other side. We don't want to be like that. Maybe some of us have been like that. I have been like that at times. Lord, Forgive me for turning a blind eye towards those who suffer. Forgive me. And the beauty of Jesus is he does forgive. The two men I met with were the most gracious, kind, forgiving, get the gospel kind of guys. And they know we're, we're all going to mess things up. But there's grace and there's forgiveness and there's power to change. Lastly, we... We want to see the suffering. We want to be moved by the suffering. 
in this case of the parable, it's a, it's a bloodied man who could die. Proving to be a neighbor will result in taking action. If we're going to be a true neighbor, if we're really going to love others, as our church mission statement says, it will result in action, real action. Look at some of the action he did. Verse 34, he went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. So he tenderly took care of him. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? So let's put them in categories. This man in the parable risked his reputation. He was associating and caring for someone that he knew most likely did not like him at all. And his friends may have had something to say about that. His family members may have had something to say about that. This man kindly bound up his wounds and was a servant. He got messy in the care of this individual. The man gave up the comfort of riding to Jericho on his donkey and walked alongside the victim as the donkey carried him. So it was probably a lot less pleasant of a a journey. The man went and, and paid for lodging and stayed by his side at his most critical time. Was right there with him. The man freely gave his money, his time, his resources, and his reputation. That's action. Now we're going to be called to do different things. My appeal to you is ask the Lord, Lord, what can I do with one area, one of these categories? What is a way that I can minister and take action? I'm going to do another little side note here. And I do this in the most loving way that I know how to do. So I'm going to appeal to to you. This may hurt a little bit for some people, but hear it as a loving pastor appealing to you. These issues, I promise you, will not be solved on Facebook or Twitter. They will not be. They will not be. One of the beauties of our country is the freedom to speak, and, and we love that. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing as a preacher of good news. But we live in very divisive times in our country. And from what I've seen on Twitter and and Facebook is, is what usually happens, rather than healthy, thoughtful dialogue, is someone says something that could be a legitimate point. People attack it who disagree with the point. And then it just gets ugly fast. It is so much better to sit face-to-face with someone. Pick one person, maybe that you've regularly debated in a social media outlet, and take them out to lunch. Have them over for dinner. Get to know them. Ask them what their life is like. Now, I think at times we think this is a new thing. This is not a new thing. I'm reading a book by J.C. Ryle, who was a pastor in the 1800s, and he basically said the exact same thing that I'm saying about Facebook and Twitter, but he said it to the newspaper. And so he has several chapters in his biography where he, he is appealing with Christians and even his fierce opponents, and he had many, to sit down with them and talk with them and get to know them as image bearers of God. It doesn't mean you agree with them at the end of the day, but I think what you'll find is they'll know that you love them and are for them 
and you'll make a lot more progress. And boy, won't we be a better community for it. That's my appeal. I know I've appealed to a number of you um, privately about that as well. Um, it's a thing. It's not just a thing with our church. It's just a thing. It's the, the age we live in. But shouldn't we be different? Shouldn't we as Christians, who has God's Spirit, shouldn't we be different? Jesus thinks so. Listen to how he says this in Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth, but if a salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and gives its light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and your loving, compassionate good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what we want to be, salt and light, loving ambassadors to a dying and broken world. Here's just a couple practical next steps, and then we'll wrap it up. Pray that our eyes would be open to the needs and suffering around us. Listen to those who have different skin color than you or a different viewpoint than you. Listen, 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 read, listen, seek to understand. Ask the Lord to show you where you have sinned. Repent and receive fresh forgiveness. Repentance and confession is to be a, a, a joyful experience. Lord, I've sinned. You've convicted me. You're, you want me to be different. You're going to free me. You're going to change me. And I'm excited about that. Second Chronicles 7 says this, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. A few more. Educate yourself through books, articles, and most importantly, this is my favorite, personal conversations with real human beings. If you need resources, I can recommend some to you. Gospel Coalition and Christianity Today have been writing all kinds of good articles. Um, Educate yourself. And then, I've said this before, but wonder how, how much time do you spend in this book versus watching news and, and doing other things? If you flip those proportions, you will be different, I promise you. You will, you will, you will be impactful. You will be salt and light, as Jesus says, and, and it will be a powerful, beautiful thing if we're like that. And then, Let's keep this real simple. Lord, what is one way I can take action? And whatever that one way is, don't impose that upon your fellow Christians. Whatever you should do before the Lord might be different than what I should do before the Lord. Let's give grace and freedom to how people process and respond to, to these kind of things. So I love you. Jesus loves you. And he is calling us as a church to really make an impact and so let's be like the Good Samaritan and let's get messy for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, you love us. You love all the people of all the world you have made in your image for your glory. 
Holy Spirit, we ask for your help. Lord, we want to be impactful and obedient to you. We want to be salt and light. And we ask for the Holy Spirit's power and presence. May we be different coming out of these last three months in such a good and beautiful way. And we will give you all the praise and all the glory. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.